Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Father Antoine Jalis wasn't a well-liked man. He was secretive, haughty, and the judgmental type. And he was rumored to be rich, filthy rich. He had been a priest in the small southwestern French town of Coustausa for over four decades, but he didn't have many local friends. Actually, only his nephew ever checked in on him. On All Hallows' Eve, in 1897, he prepared his meal and sat at his modest, worn-out hardwood dinner table to eat. He tore the bread with his hands and poured himself a small glass of wine. He was still wearing his dark robes and hat. He began to slowly scratch his spoon against the sides of the bowl, 
waiting for the soup to cool. Nobody knows if he ever got to taste it. The next morning on All Saints Day, he didn't show up for mass at church. Alarmed, his nephew came to check on him. Father Gilles hadn't missed mass once in 40 years, so why would he do so on one of the most important holy days of the year? When he got to his uncle's doorstep, he instantly knew something was wrong. The blinds were shut, but the door was unlocked and slightly ajar. The clergyman always left his door locked overnight. He was insanely paranoid. He even had hung a bell on the door frame so he could hear it if someone tried to break in. This definitely wasn't a good sign. The young man walked into the dark, sparsely decorated living room and found nothing amiss, so he moved on to the dining room. And the sight that greeted him when he walked in probably stuck with him forevermore. Father Gilles lay on the floor on his back in the very center of a very dark red puddle of blood. The gendarmes were puzzled. Who would want to kill such an unremarkable old man? Worse yet, the village priest. Nothing had been stolen, but boy, was he hiding something. Several invaluable ancient gold coins were found in his lodging, along with a scandalous sum of money. How had Father Gilles gotten his hands on all that gold? And how come he never told anyone about it? His drawers had been turned inside out. Whoever killed him was looking for something. Had they found it? The neighbors later confirmed that he'd received a late night visitor, but they didn't know who it was because it was so dark. That particular narrow street in Custosa had no street lights. The bell behind his door made no sound, meaning Gilles had to open the door himself to have greeted his visitor. Did these two men know each other? The crime itself had been horrific. Antoine Gilles had been beaten and stabbed to death with his own fire iron. His neck was broken, his brain was exposed and apparent through several gaping holes in his skull. There was substantial evidence suggesting the old man had fought back with all his might, but strangely, no one had heard him scream. His pocket watch was broken and stopped at exactly midnight. His estimated death time was three in the morning, and his hands had been placed together on his chest as if he was saying one last prayer. One single silent piece of evidence was left behind. A full pack of Hungary manufactured cigarette paper from the brand Tsar. Father Gilles didn't smoke and he had never been to Hungary. Tsar cigarette paper wasn't sold in France back then. On the first sheet, someone had scribbled in pencil, Viva Angelina. When Father Berenger Saunier arrived in René-le-Château, in 1885, he was only 33 years old. He had just been promoted from deacon to parish priest, and he was thrilled to take over the local church. The quaint, lush René Le Chateau, with a population of only 200, happened to be Saunier's hometown. He was to preach at St. Mary Magdalene's Church, an old Romanesque construction dating back to the 8th century. But 
his excitement was short-lived. When he arrived, he found the place dilapidated. The woodwork was so severely damaged, the altar crumbled beneath his feet. But nothing could dissuade Father Saunier from preaching his new audience with zeal and fervor. A tall, handsome man, he quickly became popular with the local women who rushed to attend mass every Sunday morning. There was no altar, so he stood on a chair. It rained heavily inside his rectory, so a local widow offered to rent him a room at her place, and he accepted. He would further shock the local community by hiring a local damsel, alluring 18-year-old Mary Darnald as his housekeeper. Bold and daring, a fierce royalist, and an unbending Catholic, Father Saunier was both controversial and strangely compelling. It would take Saunier several months to gather enough donations to fund the much-needed repairs at St. Mary Magdalene's church. He couldn't pay a carpenter, so a local shopkeeper offered to help him rebuild the altar. Saunier gladly accepted. The two men, aided by a couple of loyal youths, moved the baluster and the altar stone. As per Catholic tradition, they did so with due deference, regularly stopping to pray and to dip their hands in holy water. After all, the altar stone is an essential part of a church, consecrated by a bishop and sometimes containing fragile, invaluable relics. As the altar tabletop finally fell to the ground with a thud, the men stopped for a moment to catch their breath. But their rest break didn't last long. As the ancient Carolingian column tops were exposed, something caught a helper's eye. As the dust settled, it became apparent that there was a strange cavity in one of the columns, and there was something inside. Father Saunier walked over to the column, and noticing it was engraved with the Templar's cross, made a joke about unearthing some kind of holy treasure. They were all familiar with the local legend their fathers had told them as children. Centuries ago, large amounts of gold had been buried in the area for the initiated to find, but no one ever did. Saunier reached inside the cavity and felt around, but all that came out was a handful of dried fern, so old it quickly turned to dust in his hand. He reached in again, but this time he wasn't disappointed. The men quickly gathered around him, curious to see what it was. But what Saunier had pulled out of the cachet looked nothing like a relic. He was holding three time-worn wooden tubes, all sealed shut with a strange wax seal. French law stated that whatever one found in a church had to be handed over to the town hall before it could be tampered with, but curiosity won the best of the young priest. He carefully broke the seal and began to extract a series of parchment scrolls. They looked as old as the church itself. 
the repairs long forgotten, the men sat on the dusty floor in a circle as Father Saunier made the sign of the cross, kissed his rosary, and began to lay the scrolls out in front of him. Besides him, the men were barely literate, but they would later share their accounts of what they saw. The first roll was a sort of family tree bearing the date 1244. The second and third were long texts from the 1600s. There was also a fourth one, which appeared to contain multiple lines of disordered writing, including some upside down. The men looked up at the priest inquisitively, only to see the color drain from his face. What exactly Father Saunier read in those papers is a mystery to this day. Minutes later, he slipped the parchments under the folds of his dark robes and ran out into the rectory without a word. He was not seen again that day. A few weeks later, word had gotten around that important relics had been found at St. Mary Magdalene's church. The local mayor approached Saunier to demand an explanation. To his surprise, the young man categorically denied finding anything under the old altar, nothing whatsoever. The mayor was aghast, but he chose to believe the respectable clergyman. Intrigued, the shopkeeper and the youths that were there with him that day decided to confront him, and they could hardly believe what they were told. Saunier confided in them that the documents he had found were of the utmost importance, not just to St. Mary Magdalene's church. Actually, the information they contained was so groundbreaking and potentially dangerous, it was vital to Catholics all over the world, and thus, the men were to keep quiet, and he was to make sure the parchments never left his rectory. But that was not all the men would discover as they dislodged the massive stones in the central aisle. Weeks later, a helper came running and practically dragged Saunier from his perch under the pine, causing him to drop his Bible. As the men brought down a brick wall behind the altar, they had found a small hole in the ground. As they widened it with a pick, the light shone on several glistening objects. Saunier ran inside to find several solid gold coins and an ornate golden chalice. Later that day, they would also unearth a gravestone engraved with the likeness of a knight and a human skull with a mysterious hole drilled through the very middle of the parietal bone. Like the first time, Father Saunier, who had trouble hiding his shock, convinced the men to sweep this under the carpet. And so, the bones and golden items disappeared into the dark confines of the rectory, carefully hidden under his black robes. In the months that followed, the once charming Father Saunier became increasingly withdrawn. He avoided all contact with the curious parishioners who by now believed an invaluable treasure had been found at the local church. 
there was talk of gold being left behind by the Knights Templar. Or maybe a monstrous secret relating to Mary Magdalene herself. And why not both? Myths and legends died hard in places like René Le Chateau. And this particular legend said that a boat without sails washed up in southern France circa 35 AD, carrying three women named Mary, one of them being Mary Magdalene. It sounds too good to be true, but the truth is that the apostles, pursued by the Romans in the wake of Jesus' trial, had to flee Jerusalem to stay alive. Southern France was a Jewish princedom at the time, a safe place for someone like Jesus' loyal companion. Going back to the legend, Mary Magdalene went on to start her own church and later died somewhere in the mountains. To honor her memory, the pious built a large number of churches dedicated to her, but her remains have never been found. The mayor paid Saunier another visit, and priests from other parishes came to see him in hopes of teasing an answer out of him, but they got nothing. Saunier moved from the widow's spare room into his newly refurbished rectory, locked the door, and would only share his deepest secrets with his young housemaid, Mary. At night, he would go back into the church and dig, he was particularly invested in digging a hole in the back wall of a small crawl space in his sacristy. When asked, he told churchgoers he was just building himself a closet. The matter was dropped, and Father Saunier quickly resumed his digging. The sound of his shovel, an eerie omen. Shortly afterward, rumors surfaced that Father Saunier had extended his nightly digging to the church's adjacent cemetery. In the moonlight, one could sometimes make out his servant Mary's dark figure, upright, solemn, and undaunted, assisting him in his profanity with her enigmatic presence. Father Saunier was often seen digging up old tombs and trying to erase the epitaphs in specific gravestones. He was particularly invested in getting rid of one, the grave of a woman who had been dead for over a century, Marie de Neret d'Ablet. If records are to be believed, Marie de Neret had been a character as mysterious as Saunier's motives. She had been a marquise, yet her tomb was hastily and sloppily engraved with several spelling mistakes. Her name had several typos in it, and certain words alternated capitals and lowercase. Put together, the lowercase letters spelled out the word sword. The few records that survive to this day also show that the Latin inscriptions can be rearranged to form one or more anagrams. Could they be coded messages? Marie de Negre was said to have discovered a terrible family secret Ancient parchments were also involved. In her deathbed, in 1781, she called a priest from René to confess, but as was protocol, he took her secrets to the grave. 
when the increasingly concerned town council put him between a rock and a hard place. The increasingly erratic Sonnier had to come clean about his discoveries. He provided a tracing paper copy of the parchment rolls he found, but never produced the originals. The texts turned out to be testaments, papers mentioning the treasure of Blanche of Castile, royal Merovingian family trees, Old Testament writings, and coded messages dating from the 13th through 17th centuries. Remarkable as those might have been, the town council was convinced there was something else at play, something far more unsettling. After the Bishop of Carcassonne himself came to pay the young priest a visit, the latter was seen hastily hopping on a train to Paris. Whatever the bishop had read in Saunier's parchments must have shaken him to his core. Saunier ended up spending the summer in the French capital. He supposedly went there to seek an expert opinion on the coded parchments at St. Sulpice Seminary. No one knows what St. Sulpice's verdict was, or even if there was one. And no one knows what exactly Father Saunier did in Paris, except that he was often seen with the occultist Jules Bois, who also happened to be the author of several books on Satanism, an unusual choice of friends for an unusual clergyman. When he returned in early autumn, Saunier began to spend less and less time in René Le Chateau. The local folk lined up for their weekly confessions, but sometimes he wouldn't turn up for several days. Every now and then, a local would find him digging holes in crop fields or dragging a heavy suitcase through secluded country roads. It was around this time that he began to refurbish his church with lavish artifacts. He had sculptors ornate the aisles, painters decorate the walls with impressively realistic Bible scenes, except that the style he chose was described as strikingly inappropriate for a church. He placed the column where he found the parchments with the Templar's cross upside down in the garden and the words, Mission 1891, he had engraved on it. He redesigned the floors in black and white so they resembled a chessboard. He had the painters draw ominous Latin inscriptions on the walls, one of them reading, Terribilis es locos iste, that translates to this place is dreadful, right by the front door. Many have noted that the names of the saints he chose to decorate the church with spell out the word grail. Coincidence? And better yet, he insisted on having a local artist sculpt him an uncanny statue of a devil holding up the holy water font, remarkably unholy. Saunier also went on to buy himself a stretch of land adjacent to his church under his servant Mary's name. He used it to build himself a villa, complete with a personal library inside a tower facing the lush green plateau. He would later add a greenhouse and a menagerie where he kept exotic pets, monkeys, macaws, cockatoos, not to mention his two loyal companions, two large black dogs. And that's not all. Father Saunier seemed to have a soft spot for fashion. 
He spent immoderate amounts of money on clothes, jewelry, and rare stamps for his extensive collection. Mary, despite being a simple housemaid, was often seen in town in opulent silks, velvets, pearls, and furs. He opened himself a secret bank account in Hungary, where he deposited his spare money. In his free time, Saunier frequently received guests in his new eccentric home. He greeted them with the finest imported alcohol and through grand receptions, but nobody in town knew who these people were. Besides Mary and his mysterious guests, he only had two other close friends. One of them was Henri Boudet, and he was the priest of the parish of rené le bain just southeast of rené le chateau Boudet was passionate about history and archaeology. He wrote several books on local Celtic lore and, most remarkably, a book on Mary Magdalene. Henri Boudet came from a slightly more affluent family than Saunier, yet he too was unexplainably rich for a clergyman. When he learned that Saunier wanted to renovate his church, he offered to help him pick the right icons. He's rumored to be the mastermind behind the uncanny symbology we can still see today at St. Mary Magdalene's church. Were the two men working together to leave behind some kind of elaborate code? His other friend was called Antoine Jelly. Father Jelly was a priest in Kutausa, an hour's walk northeast. Father Saunier, being much younger and the athletic type, visited Father Jelly almost every week until his brutal murder in 1897. But Saunier didn't attend his funeral. The villagers were understandably dumbfounded as they watched Saunier spend thousands on his very own cryptic projects. As a priest, his salary was ludicrous. His family had left him no heritage. Churchgoers were penniless and donations were scant. It had taken Saunier years to save up enough money to rebuild his crumbling altar, and yet, when he returned from Paris in the summer of 1891, he was a millionaire, and by the looks of it, he was sharing a large slice of his earnings with his close friends. The archdiocese made multiple attempts to understand where his wages were coming from, Invariably, Saunier replied that he often received generous donations from anonymous benefactors. His asset registers were seized on multiple occasions, but they'd all been tampered with. Unimpressed by the local rumors hinting at a hidden Templar treasure or the Vatican paying him to keep the contents of his parchments a secret, the bishop suspended him from his duties as a priest. He was convinced Father Saunier was practicing simony, hosting private masses and services for the royalists in exchange for large sums of money. Some believe those secret masses might have actually been satanic rituals, considering his ties to Parisian occultist cliques and unsettling decorations he picked for his church. Undeterred by the ecclesiastical verdict, Saunier continued to host private masses in his villa until he died in 1917. He was only 65 when he succumbed to a brain hemorrhage in his library. His governess Mary rushed for the doctor, but there was very little that could be done. 
bedridden, Father Saunier survived for a total of five days. He had Mary burn all his files in the journals he kept, dragging himself to the fireplace to make sure that all of the evidence was properly destroyed. The town's new priest, Father Riviere, rushed to grant him his last rites and take his confession. For an entire afternoon, neither man left Saunier's room. As night fell, Father Riviere was seen running out of the old man's villa, aghast. Father Saunier was refused his absolution and went to his grave a sinner. Mary Darnell, his governess, survived him by many decades. She never spoke about the puzzling parchments, the treasure, the hidden crypt, Saunier's misadventures in Paris, or the nature of their relationship. A local businessman called Noel Corbu approached her in her final years and offered to buy the invaluable estate she had inherited from Saunier, which she accepted. Dr. Corbu had secret hopes that in gaining Mary's trust, she would end up telling him Saunier's secrets, but she never did. She died a recluse in 1953. Corbu, aware of the potential of the whole affair, published the story in several local newspapers. People began to flock to René Le Chateau looking for a treasure or clues in the church's intricately deliberate symbology. Many believed Father Saunier had uncovered a deep, dark secret the Catholic Church had tried to dissimulate at all costs. Proof that Mary Magdalene had married Jesus Christ and given him descendants. And these descendants later on, went to form the Merovingian dynasty, as shown in the family trees found in the parchments. Her tomb was likely to be in a crypt beneath the church, accessible through the small secret trapdoor Saunier had hidden in his sacristy. As more and more people began to visit, Corbu decided to renovate the premises and turn Saunier's villa into a hotel, as he moved the furniture around the former priest's private chapel, he too found an odd cavity inside a baluster. Inside was a parchment dating back to 1907. The handwriting was uncannily similar to Saunier's, and it appeared to be a coded message. The businessman, who had always believed Saunier might have been Gélis's killer, had experts crack the code and use the same cipher on the sentence found scribbled on the Tsar cigarette paper found at Jelise's death scene. When cracked using the same pattern, Viva Angelina translated to An Angel Returns. Every year, Hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world visit René Le Chateau in hopes of solving the mystery of Saunier's parchments. René Le Chateau has a current population of only 80 people. After decades of dealing with unruly tourists carrying out unauthorized excavations in the vicinity of the church, authorities now forbid all digging and treasure hunting activities in the area. The tombs in the adjacent cemetery were brutally vandalized in the years following Saunier's death. Access has been denied to the public for decades now. 
and nature soon took over. Nobody knows what happened to the original parchments, and while there are alleged copies in different archives, no version was ever confirmed to be authentic. The skull Saunier found was discovered years after his death and turned out to be a real human skull, belonging to a 50-year-old man from the 13th century, possibly a knight. Many researchers believe there is a crypt beneath the church, home to the tomb of Mary Magdalene herself, in the small sacristy Berenger Saunier refurbished, the small secret trapdoor is still visible. A dog once found its way in, and its owners then heard it bark deep underground, further cementing the rumor that there is in fact a large hidden chamber there. Several reputable archaeologists have tried to obtain permission to excavate the site and locate the crypt, but it has never been granted, even to this day. Antoine Jelly's murder was never solved. Like Noël Corbeau, many believe his murderer was none other than Saunier. He probably considered Father Jelly a liability and wanted to keep him quiet. The Tsar cigarette paper was made in Hungary, where Saunier had a bank account. Dan Brown's 2003 novel, The Da Vinci Code, is loosely based on the René Le Chateau affair. One of his characters is actually named after Saunier, but his death was inspired by Jelly's murder. In the early 1960s, this story caught the attention of Pierre Plantal, who had founded the Priory of Sion just a few years earlier. He claimed it was a secret society that had actually begun in 1099 to reinstate the Merovingian kings. The Merovingians had ruled France until the 7th century when it was believed that the last heir to the throne died. According to Plantard, however, there was one son who had escaped death, and he fled to René Le Chateau, and believe it or not, he was Plantard's great-great-grandfather. Plantard went to René Le Chateau, and he and Corbu swapped treasure theories. They decided that maybe it wasn't Blanche's treasure, and that the priest had found. Maybe it was something else. Something like parchments proving that the Merovingian bloodline still existed. Soon after their meeting, Corbu did another interview. This time, he left Blanche completely out of the picture. Now, he claimed that the priest had found ancient parchments containing a dangerous secret. This story reached the ears of Gérard de Cédé, a French author, he met with Plantard to get more details, and the result was a book published in 1967 called L'Or de Rennes, Gold of René. Plantard's story was told as historical fact. The book even contained copies of two of the parchments as proof. The only problem? They were fakes. Philippe de Charisset confessed that he had forged the documents and they planted them in the National Library of France. 
In the 1970s, the BBC picked up on the mystery at René Le Chateau and did a series of documentaries about it. These inspired another book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, a bestseller published in 1982. This book expanded upon the original story. It was suggested that Jesus had married Mary Magdalene and had at least one child with her. After the crucifixion, Mary Magdalene and their offspring went to southern France, where Jesus' descendants married into what would become the line of Merovingian kings. This made the secret lineage not only to heirs to the throne of France, but also the descendants of Jesus. And Plantal's secret society, the Priory of Sion, has been protecting them ever since. Holy Blood, Holy Grail was the book that inspired Dan Brown to pick up the story again in his bestseller, The Da Vinci Code, in 2003. He even gave one of his characters, Jacques Saunier, the same last name as the priest from our story. The story of Berenger Saunier demonstrates how fact and legend often become intertwined in the tales of history. As stories are passed from generation to generation, they form as a snowball does, gathering more snow with each turn until the real story is buried deep within layers of fabrication and myth. The story is illustrative of the struggle historians and archaeologists face when it comes to authenticating historical claims and the difficulty in accepting the fact that sometimes we may simply never know the truth. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment and discussion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life what is it but a dream? Night, night, bitch. <laughs>